Welcome to our listeners. Today we'll be teasing Filipino American History Month with a special feature on the South China Sea dispute. Let's just take a minute to introduce ourselves. I'm Fleur and I'm in 12th grade. I'm Alexa and I'm in 11th grade. And hi, I'm David and I'm in 11th grade. All of us are HL Global Politics students, so we've been following this case study in class for a while, but this episode is really open for anyone with any interest in foreign relations or in social studies in general. So we hope you enjoy and learn something. I know a lot of us have been following this territorial conflict for a while, especially being students in Manila. To me, what stands out is the seemingly deadlocked process of resolving the conflicting territorial claims as contrasted by the quickly escalating tensions between claimants and the speed at which the disputed area is developing and becoming militarized. We'll be discussing this and giving an outline of the more historical aspects of the dispute, as well as going over more recent developments and what this means for Filipino-American relations in lieu of our monthly theme. We'll start by providing a quick overview of the conflict itself, as well as giving some relevant statistics about the region. The area is of vital strategic and resourceful importance. As of 2017, 40% of global liquefied natural gas trade passed through the South China Sea. It's also home to vast oil and natural gas deposits and plentiful fishing grounds. In 2016, 3.37 trillion US dollars worth of trade passed through the region, and since 2013, over 3,200 acres of new land, reclaimed land, had been created by the People's Republic of China in the Spratly Islands. I'm sure we've all seen the satellite images of a sandbank transformed into a militarized base. It's raised concerns everywhere about the militarization of the region, along with spats between claimants having occurred there since 2011. The dispute sparked public attention in 2009 when China officially submitted its nine-dash line claim to the UN Secretary General. Tensions between claimants grew, and in 2016, China had chosen to ignore the judgment of the Permanent Court of Arbitration, which we'll get into. The contested area we'll be taking specific interest in is the Spratly Islands, which are claimed by China, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines. It's important here to introduce the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or as we'll be calling it, the UNCLOS. It lays out a legal framework for maritime activities. We'll be going into the specifics about this later. All claimants have ratified the treaty. And while their exclusive economic zones, which span 200 nautical miles from their shores, overlap, China has claimed 80% of the territory with its nine-dash line. In territorial disputes like these, it's especially important to regard the perspectives of all stakeholders involved, as well as understand where, the, where these find their roots. The conflict's implications span to a wider range of foreign relations, most notably at the international level, due to the globalization of trade and the interconnectedness of national economies creating a single global network. The U.S.'s commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific and its increased presence in the contested waters make it a critical dispute that signifies a shift in the global focus to the region, especially when we're looking at recent developments regarding the AUKUS deal. As tensions continue to rise, let's take a closer look at each individual stakeholder's perspective. To start us off, I'll be outlining the People's Republic of China's territorial claims and justifications. And I will be going into the counterclaims as they pertain to the UN CLOS. 
China's claims are fourfold and all lie in its historical presence in the area, tracking back as far as the 2nd century BCE during the Han Dynasty, where the quote Chinese people sailed in the South China Sea and discovered the islands in the long course of activities, end quote, as claimed by its government. It cites both international and national documentation of Chinese settlement and fishing activity in the region, as well as archaeological finds. The thing to note about this claim, though, is that the UN CLOS does not recognize its signatories' claims rooted in irredentism that are supported by its historical legacy. Additionally, the concept of historic rights is lacking a basis in international law and also very vague. China maintains that its historic presence in the region assigns it the rights of archipelago states and that the waters between mainland China and the Paracel Islands are not international waters, but its internal territorial waters, therefore giving China complete sovereignty and rights to carry out military activity there, as well as the right to require permission for foreign ships to pass. It's important to note here, China has only officially done this for the Paracel Islands but its reaction to foreign activity in the Sprata region, as well as its territorial claim of it, suggests that it has that same interpretation. The United Nations has a very specific process for conferring these rights, and only a small group of 22 archipelago states have them. With China being a continental country, its archipelagic claim, only given merit to the contested Paracel Islands, has little basis. Finally, an important aspect of China's claims over the region is that it asserts for 12 nautical miles, as per UNCLOS Article 3, Section 2, of territorial sea beyond the borders of these island groups. UNCLOS has specifications for the classification of what they call features. Most of China's claimed features do not meet the standard for any rights under international law. China's artificial islands and its classification of the Spratlys as, quote, low tide elevations and submerged features, end quote, warrant it no 12 nautical mile right. Next, we'll explore the Filipino perspective. The region known as the Spratly Islands lies within 200 nautical miles of Palawan, which should give it exclusive rights to natural resource harvesting there, including fishing and oil and natural gas extraction. The South China Sea Tribunal found its sovereign rights were found to be violated by China. First, by its interference with Philippine fishing and petroleum exploration. The most notable reported incident was in 2001, with Philippine fishing vessels operating 140 nautical miles off of Palawan, being intercepted and targeted by Chinese warships. The second violation of international law was China's failure to prevent Chinese fishermen from harvesting within the Philippine EEZ and last by its construction of its artificial islands that are equipped with infrastructures such as runways, support buildings, loading piers, and communications facilities, as well as missiles and missile defense systems. These fortifications to the islands boost its ability to project its power beyond its coastline, extending its operational range both southward and eastward as far as 1,000 kilometers. It's especially concerning for regional tensions demonstrated by the drastic increase in military spending in claimants from 2008 to 2018. China's rose by 131% in this period. Several incidents outlined the power disparity between China and the Philippines, most notably the escalation of the Scarborough Shoal incident in 2012, 
which started with the arrests of illegal Chinese fishermen, retaliated by the Chinese threat of military action and harassment of Philippine ships. I've listened to some interviews with Philippine Marines as well as watched videos of the Sierra Madre, a dilapidated former U.S. World War II tank landing ship that serves as the Philippines' outpost against China in the Spratly Islands. We'll put a link to these documentaries in the show notes if you're interested, and it's truly emblematic of the military power disparity between the Philippines and China and the Philippine dependence on foreign powers to support its territorial claim as well. Also notable here is the erosion of China's legitimacy benefits confirmed by the following of international law through its militarization of the reefs. The United States has become increasingly involved with the dispute, shifting its foreign policy to the region in recent years and expressing its interest in a, quote, free and open Indo-Pacific, end quote. A challenge by the U.S. of China's legal legitimacy will concur costs on reputation-sensitive, in other terms, soft power-sensitive, foreign policy decisions made by Beijing. The U.S. has expressed its support for the Philippines' claims of the islands, fulfilling its general role as an enforcer of international law and norms. The White House released a statement regarding China's activity in the South China Sea as, quote, unlawful, end quote. Although the extent of American support for the Philippines' claims is shaky, because it itself has not ratified the UN PLOS, which undermines the effectiveness of the U.S. approach for pushing back at Beijing with legal tools of statecraft. It also responded with economic sanctions in China, creating a blacklist of Chinese companies that aided in the construction of over 3,000 acres of islands, barring U.S. companies from exporting to the target 300 firms without a government license, as well as imposing visa restrictions on the executives. China's embassy in the U.S. called the actions, quote, an act of hegemony in serious violation of international law and basic norms governing international relations, end quote. The U.S. has also engaged in military activity in the disputed region by flying surveillance aircraft and dispatching warships within 12 nautical miles of disputed features in the Spratly Island chain. Both are legal under U.N. CLOS. Other highly publicized moves are the U.S. Freedom of Navigation Operations, or FONOPS, and the routine practice of freedom of navigation activities. The former is to challenge Chinese maritime claims, while the latter is to emphasize the vitality of freedom of navigation in the waters and express U.S. support for its regional allies. While these activities are technically lawful under the UNCLOS, there exists a need to solidify norms more effectively. While the U.S. and Australia both insist that the freedom of navigation of military vessels within other EEZs is universally accepted in international law, other countries argue that warships have no automatic right of innocent passage into a host country's EEZ as military activities infringe on the security interests of the coastal state and therefore are not protected under freedom of navigation rights. It ultimately boils down to intent, which is difficult to supply evidence for to quantify. Something to look out for in current events is the recent AUKUS deal, the developments of which will hugely determine the direction of peace and sovereignty claims in the South China Sea. With territorial conflicts like these, claims run deep into the cultural and diplomatic histories of involved parties. 
several structures like international law and norms sometimes become ineffective in conflict resolution. We know that in 2016, the permanent court of arbitration ruled in the Philippines' favor on most counts, especially with regions of significant economic and military strategical importance the extent to which claims can be mediated is limited. Looking ahead, a more sophisticated multilateral framework for conflict resolution could be developed. While the Declaration on the Conduct of Parties in the South China Sea already lays out non-binding confidence-building measures, given the deadlock in negotiations and China's tendency to handle disputes bilaterally, ASEAN claimants to the contested territory may want to present a more united front, as there are differences among them vis-a-vis China. Militarily, mutual defense treaties between the U.S. and the Philippines already exist, solidifying alliances in the region. These, however, along with economic responses to the conflict in the form of sanctions between the Philippines and China and U.S. and China, are seen to worsen tensions. Given that international arbitration and diplomatic resolution through the UN Security Council is likely ineffective, claimants may open up for more effective military-to-military communication mechanisms like hotlines to connect leaders should misunderstandings occur. It's definitely difficult to approach a situation like this one. Each party's response has, on the whole, done more to increase tensions rather than relieve them, and economic sanctions have made global trade inefficient and brought more instability to the region. Given that diplomatic procedures have done little to alleviate political strain in the region, and that claims of international law are proving ineffective, we're ultimately looking for the point at which a multilateral agreement or compromise is put forward, or a claimant surrenders, whether that be China at the point that its increase in hard power cannot keep up with the erosion of the legitimacy of its claim due to global pressure, or the Philippines withdrawing its claim due to Chinese military intimidation. It's surely something to look out for, especially as we see a global shift of diplomatic focus on the Southeast Asian region. We hope that this episode has informed you all on the history behind, as well as more recent developments in the South China Sea conflict. This was a primer of U.S.-Philippine relations, which we'll take a deeper dive into in our next episode, This Philippine American History Month. So keep your eyes out for that. With that, we'd like to thank our listeners. See you next time on Ferris Nunches, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.